I'm Rafa Aoi, co-host of Pull Quotes. And I'm Gabe Oatley, the other half of Pull Quotes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long-form stories. Rahaf, hello. Who did you chat with this week? Yeah, I spoke with Emma Gilchrist, who is a reporter and editor who focuses on environmental issues, and she's also the co-founder of The Narwhal. I love The Narwhal. I so appreciate the journalism they do, and I also really like their hats. I'm still trying to figure out how to get myself one of those hats. I don't know if you've seen those. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the hats. Maybe maybe next year I will get one. Uh, okay, irrelevant. Um, what was the piece that you spoke with Emma about? Yeah, so the piece we chatted about, um, it isn't an environmental piece. Um, it's actually called Genetic Mapping, and it was published in Maisonneuve last April. Um, So it's a personal long-form piece about Emma's journey to figuring out who her biological father is. And Mm -hmm. in the piece, she touches on her adoption story. And she just talks about how significant all her parents are, but how finding this out was important to her. Uh, And overall, it's also about the bigger phenomenon of DNA testing. Yeah, I, I really like this piece. I mean, like for one, I think it's just so important that we hear about the experiences of folks who have been adopted. Um, but also like for me personally, as a queer person, this story just offered so much helpful insight. Um, like I've got lots of buds who are thinking about um, having kids and like how to actually make that thing happen, like thinking through um, whether to go with an anonymous sperm donor or a known donor Mm -hmm. or adopt or fostering. Um, And like with all those questions, this story felt um, really significant in terms of just like hearing about what drove Emma to try and find her biological father and like why that was so important to her. Yeah, for sure. And that was actually one of the things that came up during our interview, Uh, just how many people like reached out to Emma Uh, to Mm. let her know how they related to the piece and Mm. just how meaningful it was that she shared her story. Um, She also shared how she wrote this whole piece in a week from a cabin in the woods. Oh my God, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so so impressive. This is such a great story, uh, especially for being written in a week in a cabin Mm -hmm. in the woods. Cool. Um, Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing this chat. Yeah, let's play it. Hi, Emma. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. It's really great to have you on the podcast. So we're here to talk about your piece, Genetic Mapping, which is a deeply personal story, and it also made me cry. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about the piece uh, for those who have yet to read it? Yeah, for sure. So the story is about how I did a DNA test, one of these online DNA tests, and basically discovered that the person who I thought to be my biological father wasn't my biological father. And that is a kind of common experience these days with the rise of DNA testing. Um, There's so many people doing them, and estimates are that somewhere in the range of 4% of paternity tends to be misattributed. Um, and I was one of those people. So I got what is called in that DNA community a, a not parent expected result or an NPE. Um, and it kind of threw my whole world into flux. And so the story is 
about like the various pieces of that from um, the person who I thought to be my biological father to the new biological father, um, conversations with my biological mother, and then it also brings in the voices of experts to speak to how this is a growing sociological phenomenon and how it how it impacts people mm-hmm. so uh, at what point did you decide to write this piece uh, was this something that you were kind of always curious about exploring in sort of a long-form feature or was it after you got the news about your biological father yeah so i i'm adopted as well and so i had been working on a story about that for for quite a while but it had kind of hit a standstill I wasn't sure how to package it I wasn't really sure what the hook was and then as soon as I got this DNA results I thought okay I'm probably gonna want to write about this someday so I tried to keep pretty good notes and it was just such a surreal experience and it was so dramatic and I ended up telling the story so many times to friends and colleagues and stuff. Um, so yeah, I pretty early on knew that I like would hope to write about it someday. I didn't expect to write about it like so soon though. So I, I found my new biological father in March and by December I had the assignment to write about it. So, you know, about like six months later, basically I had started writing it and then it came out it came out about a year after the event happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the story is super personal. So I'm curious what inspired you to want to share that story so publicly? Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, I'd been thinking about just the whole concept of the like the right to know where you come from, which is a big issue for adoptees. And like when I came of age, like when I turned 18 in Alberta, I didn't have a right to my own original birth certificate or any of the information on who my biological parents had been. And so that had been like a long simmering issue in my mind. And then I'd also uh, read a lot about people who are donor conceived and Canada allows like anonymous sperm donation. So lots of people who are conceived that way don't know who their biological parents are. And then in my story as well, like there was this shifting um, kind of like ethnic or racial identity happening. And and that just felt like a really important part of the conversation, too. I think sometimes the conversations that we have about identity, like it assumes that everybody gets to know their identity. And and that's actually a privilege that quite a lot of people don't have, you know, for a variety of reasons. So. I liked how the story touched on all of those aspects and kind of uh, it just like tosses them all up in the air and it's like the whole concept of anonymous sperm donation or closed adoption basically doesn't exist anymore because with these DNA tests you can get matched with you know relatives all over the world and I just think it's a really important conversation to have about how like the stories we tell ourselves and who we think we are and people you know will feel so kind of certain that that they know who their parents are everybody thinks they're certain about who their parents are nobody expects to get that kind of result you know um and yet you know one in 20 people are getting that kind of result interesting okay so the stuff you just mentioned and the data is this information that you already knew going into the piece or was it stuff that you started to look into and explore while while writing the piece? Parts of it I knew. Um, 
like in terms of like the biological rights and like the like history of like adoption rights and donor conception and stuff like that but in terms of like the prevalence and just like the increase in the number of DNA tests that people are doing like people are just giving DNA tests to their family members for Christmas like it's like a fun gift you know um and you know the idea that they can reveal these family secrets um I definitely I discovered a lot of that after my own discovery and I read a couple of books on the subject actually that were really informative um so yeah I had read those before I kind of dove into writing my own story Mm -hmm. was it challenging uh deciding what you wanted to include in the piece and sort of balancing all that with your own personal story yeah it was because there is so much and there's so many different kind of avenues that story could have gone down like it could have gone really down like the adoption rights you know place it could have gone really into like racial and ethnic identities um but ultimately it needed to you know stay i think it was about seven thousand words in the end so i i comforted myself by creating like pretty much like the outline of a book in the process and and like recognizing like each of these topics could be its own chapter whether I ever actually write the book or not um but it's like the one story didn't need to be everything it needed to kind of navigate its way through my own personal story you know you you can only go to a certain depth to to include everything that you have to include mm-hmm, yeah definitely um, also, considering that you don't typically write um, long-form personal narratives, uh, did you approach this piece uh, differently? Yeah, I think what was kind of... I mean, I love like doing this kind of writing. I haven't really done it for publication a lot before, but I mean, a lot of it was pulled from like my journals and personal observations and that stuff is really fun to write I think and it like as opposed to maybe some more of like the environmental reporting work that I have done that's just like it's very like fact-based it's all based on interviews it's all pulled from reports there's less like license to really like flex your writing muscle you know so yeah when I wrote this story like I basically got out like all of my journals and my adoption records and my family tree like from my original birth dad and um I pulled out like previous iterations like I'd written little parts of the story before and so it was like a big mishmash of all of those things interesting and since you mentioned that you had like little parts of the story already written before uh at what point did you start reaching out to like expert sources did that come after writing your personal story yeah mostly like I had I had most of the like personal bits um not all of it but like some of the scenes and stuff like that I would try to write them like as soon as possible before I would forget them and then it all happened really fast though in terms of like actually pulling it together I I went to like a cabin in the woods for a week and I wrote the story in that week in including most of the expert interviews so it was kind of like simultaneous and the expert interviews really helped me it really helped me interpret my own experience and it helped me write my own 
kind of takeaways and and thoughts as well wow a cabin in the woods and in one week that is super impressive so i also wanted to talk a little bit about the structure so that opening scene was just wow like i was reading it and my heart was beating so fast and you ended the piece by finishing off that opening scene uh could you talk a little bit about your decision to open and close the piece uh that way yeah for sure so i always knew i wanted to open with that scene and i wrote that scene like first um so that part was always really clear that i wanted this little vignette of just this like really jarring sad you know tough moment and then i think it was actually my editor who really encouraged me to come back to that um at the end of the piece and I, I I wasn't exactly sure where to place that part, but she really wanted it to come back to that near the end. And I think that that ended up working out really nicely and coming to, because in many ways it's like the story isn't really about my original birth dad, but he was probably like the most negatively impacted by the whole thing. Um, and I think it was really nice to come back to that. And actually some of the conversation that is in the piece, like near the end, like um happened like near the end of the editing process like it it happened like while I was writing the story like when I I went for a lunch with him and um he when he said like in my heart of hearts you're my daughter and um and but that he knew what I was gonna say that day in the diner and he said it was just a look in your eyes and I said father's intuition um that that like happened I think in like the January um so it was like it was almost like a late addition to the piece and I'm just so glad that that scene happened (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious actually since you bring up um your original birth dad I I'm curious was it challenging to kind of publish a piece that also brings up um all these close people to you Uh, like were you ever hesitant to share this publicly yeah, I, I was for sure. Like, I, I think there was something, so there's something about being adopted in general, where you're always worried about all of your parents and protecting all of the people and their feelings. And, and it's like, you know, of all the people involved, like, I'm the one who never made the choice to get involved in an adoption scenario, right? And I think with this next chapter that happened in the DNA test, and finding out that I'd had the wrong biological father, I just felt really empowered to like claim my own story and to not worry so much about, you know, everybody else's um, perspectives. Um, But I I was definitely like pretty nervous when it came out and when I, I, you know, shared it, um, you know, personally, I kind of did, I joked that I did like a stakeholder consultation where I like shared it personally with like each of the parents and like anxiously awaited their feedback and including like my adoptive parents, because, you know, it implicates them a little bit too. And it, it touches a bit on like how adoption was hard for me. And I was probably most anxious about sharing that, even though to the reader, maybe that didn't seem like the most notable thing in the story, but it was like, yeah, it, it was quite quite anxiety-inducing. I was also really worried about how it would feel for my um, original birth dad. But he ended up loving it, I think, in part, because one of the things that 
people told me about the pieces, like my love for him and like our relationship really came through strongly. Yeah, it really did. So overall, it was a positive reaction. Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty positive. Like there were definitely, you know, some kind of tricky conversations. But I always just say like that all of my parents are still talking to me and I have relationships with all of them. So and the piece is actually about to be published a shorter version is about to be published in Reader's Digest this spring so it all just got re-fact checked yet again and it still stands so (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm glad so how was the whole fact checking process uh, especially with like reaching out to all your parents and your journal entries what was that like yeah it was so interesting I hadn't been through a lot of like magazine fact checking processes before but I mean I've been through a few and and this is just like so intense when like you know the big sources in my story are they're people they're my parents and they're I'm relaying conversations private conversations basically that I had with my parents like conversations I had with my birth mom while we're hiking and and stuff like that and so when I kind of learned that the fact checker was going to call all of them it definitely made me feel a bit nervous because part of what the story is about is like the elusive nature of truth and how many people can have different recollections of the same same event right and it's all about an event that happened 37 years ago that seemed inconsequential at the time (laughs) right my conception it's really all about how was i conceived and how did we get the story wrong you know um and people have different memories of that or a lack of memory about that and at the same time it's like yeah i mean do you remember every word you said you know on a hike with your friend six months ago like probably not um so yeah it made me nervous and it i think especially like for my original birth dad, he doesn't like really, you know, live in a world where he's like getting called up to be interviewed or fact checked all the time. And it was like a bit alarming for him, especially like the story mentions that he, you know, had a troubled past and like, I think it made him anxious to bring some of that stuff up. Um, so yeah, I, I had to like, kind of like warn all my parents that they were going to get fact checked. And then like, you know check in with them after and make sure they were okay (laughs) (laughs) i love that yeah in the piece you also brought up uh the first email your biological mom had sent you uh do you still have that email yeah i do i still have that email the first email she sent me um they didn't actually ask to see that i think they must have asked her like if that sounded about right for what the first email was but yeah i kept all those like early emails and then I pulled from my journals and stuff. I did, and I had all of these documents about like my original birth dad's family tree um, because he's Métis and we were like in the process of like applying, you know, for Métis citizenship. And so I had all of, all of that stuff. And like, I'd been looking into that for 15 years. It's like still to this day when I hear somebody like mention our last name I'm like oh yeah that's that's my family like and then I'm like oh wait wait a second and but in a way they are still my family because like what is family if it's not like family is mostly who we think it to be is I think part of what the story is but it's like you know my parents the people who I call my parents are the people who raised me and I have no biological connection to and then my original birth dad uh, you know 
I thought he, he I thought he was my birth dad for 15 years and I studied that family history for 15 years and I think the fact that he isn't actually my biological dad doesn't make him not a father figure to me you know he is still a father figure yeah for sure I have another structure question so when you brought up the Facebook messages from your biological father you structured it in a way that was like I was basically reading the conversation off your Facebook. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your decision to structure it that way? Mm, yeah, I mean, that section was just like kind of such a gift because our messages were seriously like it took, I think I wrote like it took us like 13 minutes or something to like crack this decades old mystery. And I think writing it the way that I did, it's like, I think it makes the reader feel like they're receiving the messages and that it's like, oh my, oh my God, like what? And it's like, it's kind of the staccato approach, but that's literally how it was. It's like, I like would send him that. And then I like went back to like working. I was literally sitting in my office working that day. Um, and then I'd like open the window again and I was like, you know, <laughs> oh, whoa. And it just so quickly unraveled and it's like the reality is I'd had a few different conversations like that over the years and like they normally don't go anywhere. You know, it's like, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Or like you send somebody a message on Ancestry or 23andMe and you never hear from them. And like the cousin that I had reached out to, like it had taken us like over, it had taken over a year to get a response from him. So, but then when this, when this happened, it's just like all the pieces started to fall into place. And like, you know, the fact that he even wrote, um, like, oh my God, my heart is racing. It is a pretty dramatic moment. Yeah, it really was. And I loved reading that part of the piece because I felt like with every line, I was just awaiting the next Facebook message. So yeah, it was just structured so perfectly. Um, I have another uh, sort of a personal question. Uh, did you come to any conclusions about the whole nature versus nurture debate? I know you touched a little bit on that in your piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I am like, I'm continually on the <laughs> on the search for the answer to that question. I do think that I do think that nature plays a really big role. Um, but I also think that nurture plays a really big role. And like, I can see all of my parents <laughs> reflected in in me. Um, I'm still figuring that out. And uh, I think something that I got into in the story a little bit is like finding out at um, age 35 that you aren't who you thought you were is actually like quite a traumatic experience and it's a huge loss and I experienced like a lot of grief over that and sort of like a disenfranchised grief right like nobody really recognizes that that you've experienced a huge loss um it's just kind of like a fun party story. Um, but it's actually, I've, you know, I've experienced a few significant losses in my life now. And I would have to say that that was like one of the biggest one, like the amount that like that can just send your head spinning to think that you haven't known, um, you know, like who you were or where you came from. So I, I obviously think nature is like very important. And I think we all should have a right to that information. And, it felt really um, like dehumanizing to not have that information for so long. 
Wow, I love that answer. And on this topic, I, I was kind of curious, how did you manage to find so many people with uh, similar stories to your own? Yeah, so they kind of came out of the woodwork. Um, and that that's one area where I feel like I could have included so much more of other people's stories, but there wasn't room in this. Um, but yeah, I literally like just, you know, I was talking about what happened to me to everybody. And then a friend would be like, oh, well, that happened to my friend too. And then like, um, I like found out that like a counselor that I saw, it had happened to her. And then I found out, um, yeah, like another friend, friend of a friend. And, and I spoke to all of those people. So it was like, we became like kind of like a weird support group or something. Um, <laughs> and then you'll see some of the more dramatic stories in the news sometimes as well. So I kind of, they just landed with me. I find like when you start talking about these things, um, you often, yeah, you're like, oh, there's lots of people actually. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, also, could you talk a little bit about the editing process for this piece and how that was like? Yeah. So the editing process was really great and also really intense. Um, my editor was Maddie Haslam over at Mason of, and yeah, it was like the most intense editing process I've ever been through. Um, she really pushed me to like build out certain sections and explore certain sections more. Um, she pushed me to like the limits of like my memory of like what had happened in certain, certain moments. Um, but I think like ultimately, yeah, it made the piece better. And like, I wouldn't say the piece changed like super drastically from the editing process, but it changed in some like small and significant ways. Um, and it's just such a, such a pleasure to work with a great editor and she was a really great editor mm -hmm. so did you interview or speak to any of your parents for the piece uh like at one point you wrote your mom scribbled the details of the call and it was kind of something similar that you did is this a story that you kind of knew growing up or is that something you went back to kind of figure out yeah that was a story that i knew growing up and I also literally have the piece of paper oh, that actually. she scribbled the notes on oh. yeah and so I was like looking back at that and I think I actually mentioned yeah like what she wrote down um that she wrote like yeah girl September 30th born at noon <laughs> red face <laughs> plump healthy <laughs> and so yeah I like literally like pulled that out and I mean, it's so interesting, you know, you can be sitting on all those papers and like they don't really seem that interesting, but they, when you really look at them and especially when it's somebody's handwriting and it's like this creased up piece of paper that's been folded away for 35 years, they're kind of gold, right? Um, and it was actually my editor, I'm glad you bring this up because it was actually my editor who pointed out that I did the same thing. And so it was her who drew that connection that I had also scribbled the details down on the piece of paper. If only my handwriting was as nice as my mom's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have them somewhere safe or are they like framed up? <laughs> I have them somewhere like safe-ish. I should pr probably put them so like in a vault somewhere. They're just like in a special folder. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, um, well, considering, like I mentioned, this is your first long form personal feature. I'm curious, would you do it again? Yes, I would. And I'm hoping to very soon. I've, I'm kind of like, it's like running joke. 
with my friends right now that I'm like, well, thank goodness life keeps serving me up these like bizarre personal tragedies because that'll be the subject of my next article. Um, and so, yeah, I'm hoping to do something similar again um, that'll like blend a dramatic personal narrative with reporting and like draw it to like a, you know, increasing social phenomenon. And I'm just so excited to do that. I just, I honestly... I've worked in journalism for like my whole life, so over 15 years, and there's probably been nothing more satisfying than publishing this piece in Mason of. And the response that I got was like out of this world. I literally like posted about it one night and like woke up the next morning and I had heard from like every person I had ever known in my entire life. It felt like <laughs> like I had like hundreds of messages and it was just so beautiful and I think it speaks to the power of like personal narratives right like people really really connect to that and when you show your vulnerability um it helps you connect to other people and it it's kind of amazing how it it um it makes you feel less alone right I had so many people reach out about their adoption stories or their story of finding out that their dad wasn't who they who they thought it was or that they had just discovered a new sibling through a DNA test and it was it was really really cool okay um before we end off I have a more broad career question so you are the co-founder of the narwhal so could you Tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in reporting on environmental issues. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a long and winding tale, but I grew up in northern Alberta in an oil and gas town. Um, and I think like part of what we're trying to do at the Narwhal is to report on environmental issues but in like a really complicated, complex way that includes the voices of people who work in the natural resource industries and you know, allows for the fact that like an energy transition is quite complicated and it involves a lot of loss for certain people, um, as well as it being completely necessary based on the science. Um, so being from where I'm from is definitely part of that. And then also, um, I, I spent like some of the beginning of my career in England and there was just so much cool environmental journalism going on there at that time and then when I came back to Canada there wasn't really any so that's how I started doing it as just like I saw this void in Canada and I was working at the Calgary Herald at the time and I started writing this like weekly um, guide called the green guide um, on just like how to choose a fuel efficient vehicle and how to make your home more energy efficient and answering people's questions and that was super fun so that's that's how it got started and then it got like it was also deep and somewhat for sure it kind of it kind of overlaps with my story in Mason of because I my original birth dad um, was indigenous and so I was kind of quietly holding that identity too and feeling very much like um, like indigenous rights were something really important and something that I wanted to write about and work on and that has been a big part of like the Narwhals Foundation as well. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for being on the podcast. And I look forward to more crying with your future pieces. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. And that's the end of this week's episode. Pull Quotes is published by the Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Gabe Oatley and me, Rahaf Farawi. Our podcast team also includes Andrew Oliphant and Annika Foreman. 
Technical and audio support is provided by Angela Glover and web support by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata, and the music is by Harrison Amber. Join us in about 10 days for the next episode. <laughs>